0: National Archives podcast series, Keeping It in the Family, The Role of Women in Anglo-Scottish Diplomacy Before 1290, presented by Dr Jessica Nelson. This event was recorded live on 22nd May 2014 at the National Archives Q. So what I'm going to talk about is the role of women, and specifically the role of queens, in Scotland and in uh, Anglo-Scottish relations before 1290, so basically between the 11th and 13th centuries. Uh, and also, as well as sort of talking about, um, about the role of queens in Anglo-Scottish relations, I also hope to show how documents preserved here at the National Archives can be used in conjunction with documents held elsewhere, primarily chronicle evidence to kind of create the fullest possible picture of the medieval world. The role of the Queen uh, in relations between England and Scotland has been significant for almost as long as the kingdoms of England and Scotland have existed. The conquest of England by William the Conqueror in 1066 caused the family of Edward the Confessor to flee north of the border, where Edward's niece, Margaret, married the Scottish king, Malcolm III. There is nothing here at the National Archives that can shed any light on this, and instead we are reliant primarily on the story of Margaret as told by contemporary chroniclers, and also her later biographer, um, a monk by the name of Turgut and I've never known whether that's turgot to rhyme with turbot or Turgo to rhyme with merlot, so if anyone has any thoughts on that, I'd be interested to hear them. Anyway, uh, Margaret and her family, which included her brother Edgar Etheling, Etheling being used to denote that his, his throne worthiness because he was of the family of Edward the Confessor, um, were in a very tight spot. The, the Normans had conquered England, they'd had to go up to Scotland to kind of escape this. Despite this, Margaret was an Anglo-Saxon princess, and she was a very prestigious bride for the King of Scots, Malcolm Third. Edgar, her brother, wanted to win the Crown of England back from William the Conqueror. And I think it's likely, although we can't say this for certain, that Malcolm's support for this project may have been one of the conditions of the marriage. And there is some evidence that Edgar and his supporters kind of held off from allowing Margaret to marry Malcolm. That may have been one of the reasons. Margaret herself probably had little say in the negotiations Although, as I say, her later biographer, Turgot, or possibly Turgo, certainly claimed that she wanted to be a nun. But this idea, um, it's, in terms of these sort of, these biographies of medieval women, it's a, it's a fairly standard topoy to say that women wanted to be nuns, but they were forced into active political life. So we can't be sure that that was, um, that was true. For a time, Malcolm III did indeed support his brother-in-law Edgar's claim for the crown that William the Conger had won. But William was a force to be reckoned with and Malcolm fairly quickly withdrew his support from his rather hapless brother-in-law and instead came to terms with his powerful southern neighbour. By this point Margaret and Malcolm had a number of children together and I think we can speculate that uh, Queen Margaret was willing to withdraw support from her own brother in order to secure the futures of her children. If this was the case it's an early example of an issue that would frequently create challenges and difficulties for Queen's the need to balance the interests and demands of their natal families with the interests and demands of their marital families. In the turbulent and often fickle world of medieval politics, a marriage might help cement an alliance, but it was not always enough to sustain it. The strength of the new Norman dynasty now ruling in England may have contributed to a new orientation of the Scottish kings, who started looking south towards England rather than north to the islands and their Scandinavian neighbours in terms of their sort of political orientation and this can certainly be seen in changing marital practices. Malcolm III himself died in battle in 1093, and after several years of drama and turbulence in Scotland, his and Margaret's third son, Alexander, became king of Scots. Some years after his succession, Alexander married Sybilla. She was an illegitimate daughter of the reigning king of England, Henry I, and shortly before the marriage of uh, Alexander and Sybilla, Henry I himself had married uh, Malcolm Margaret's daughter, alexander's sister matilda so the illegitimate daughter of the queen of england was married to her brother in scotland it's all genealogically slightly bewildering uh, but very kind of medieval so as i say though henry had married matilda who was the the daughter of the king queen of scots and the king of scots had married his illegitimate daughter So to modernise, and indeed to some medievalise, accepting an illegitimate daughter as a wife would be a clear sign of inferiority. So by accepting an illegitimate daughter as his bride, Alexander was making himself inferior to Henry I. And this was doubtless the case to some extent, and Sibylla's illegitimacy is noted by chroniclers at the time. But in the Gallic culture prevalent in Scotland at the time, Things were a little, bit, a little bit less fully formed, and, and people in Scotland seem to have been a bit less concerned about illegitimacy. So Alexander and his nobles might not have seen it as that much of a taint. Sybilla was still the acknowledged daughter of a powerful ruling king, and Alexander was also in good company. Henry I had a veritable tribe of acknowledged bastards. Uh, in fact, I think he holds the record for the number of acknowledged illegitimate children of any English king. Um, and, uh, and he deployed his illegitimate children uh, through marriages, basically as a real, as, as key kind of diplomatic tool. So his illegitimate sons and daughters were married to important people all over Europe. Um, in this instance, Henry was probably trying to secure peace on his northern border, as well as providing a future ally for his son and heir, William the Atheling, who was also Alexander's nephew. Unfortunately, the somewhat scant sources reveal nothing about Sibylla's diplomatic activities between her husband and her father, although we do know that she acted as an intermediary in clashes between Alexandra and the English church. It's also fair to say that relations between Alexandra and Henry became more strained after her death in 1122, so it would be nice to sort of infer from this uh, that this was possibly due to a lack of Sibylla as an intermediary, but I think we should hesitate before drawing that conclusion too firmly. Nonetheless, Sibylla was the first queen to act as a marital link between the ruling dynasties of Scotland and England, and for that reason alone, her queenship was significant. Sibylla and Alexander were childless so Alexander was succeeded by his younger brother David David was a protégé of of, uh, Henry I, the King of England and had spent much of his life at the court of Henry I and Henry's Queen Matilda who, as as I've mentioned, was David's own sister David's loyalty had been rewarded with a great matrimonial prize the marriage of Countess Matilda de Senlis who was a great heiress and I can only apologise for the fact that almost all the women involved in this talk are called either Matilda or Margaret Um, it's just, I'm afraid, one of those things uh, Matilda de Senesch was the daughter of Waltheof who was the, one of the great pre-conquest earls and she was also the widow of a Norman ally of Henry's. She transmitted to David a great east Anglian honour as well as bringing with her several stepchildren from her first marriage. At the time of their marriage, which was before the marriage of, um, of Alexander and Sibylla, it's unlikely that either David or Matilda thought that they would one day be king or queen of Scotland. I think they probably assumed that, Henry and, um, that Alexander and Sibylla would have children of their own so that David wouldn't become king. Mathilde was in her late thirties and she was far from being an inexperienced young woman. She'd been an heiress, a countess, a widow and a mother and was well versed in the use of women as pawns in the game of male ambition and alliance. However, despite her experience, there is barely a trace of her activities as queen and nothing to suggest that that she had a diplomatic role. Perhaps this is not surprising. King David owed everything to Henry I and the two men remained firm allies. David's marriage to Matilda was a mark of Henry's favour, a seal upon their friendship rather than a bribe for it. Further, David's own sister was Henry's wife, so perhaps there was no need for intervention from his own wife. Had Matilda lived longer, the story may have changed. King David was a staunch supporter of the claim to the English throne of Henry's only surviving legitimate child, the Empress Matilda, another Matilda. His stepson Simon, his wife's eldest son from her first marriage, was a staunch supporter of the empress's rival, King Stephen. And perhaps this conflict may have drawn Matilda de Senlis into politics as a mediator between her husband's camp and her son's camp. And King Stephen's queen, who was also called Matilda, did mediate between her husband King Stephen and King David in Scotland, who was also her uncle through her mother. They were all related. And they were also mostly called Matilda. Family Christmases must have been a nightmare. David and King Stephen came to terms in 1139, and in recognition of Scottish power in the north, David and Matilda's son Henry was created Earl of Northumbria. As Stephen's newest earl, it was necessary to integrate Henry into Stephen's loyal elite, and marriage was the tool to bring this about. Thus, Henry was given in marriage Ada de Warren, who was the sister of some of King Stephen's most powerful allies. He gained a prestigious bride with an illustrious descent and relations in high places both in England and France. The gradual fusion of the existing Scottish and the incoming English nobility was one of the crucial developments of 12th and 13th century Scotland, and the surviving evidence, which is mostly from charters, um, of Ada's household and network shows that she had a significant role in this sort of process of acculturation. However, although she was uh, active as a countess, she had no opportunity to prove herself as queen because her husband Henry died in 1152, predeceasing his father, King David. However, David was committed to linear succession, which was still at this stage a relatively recent import in Scotland, and he moved swiftly to secure the succession of his grandson, Ada and Henry's eldest son, Malcolm. Malcolm then succeeded his grandfather when he was a young man, I think he was 13, and did not marry during his short reign, so he was then succeeded by his younger brother, William. King William I of Scots, known as William the Lion, did not himself marry until 1186, over 20 years after his succession, Scotland had been without a queen consort for over half a century and this gap has profound implications for the history of queenship in Scotland and must serve to make us very cautious about any assumptions that there was a customary or expected role for the queen or any sort of expectation that somehow there was a set role that that there had to be a woman that she had to fulfil. They could obviously essentially do without this for half a century. It also of course had profound implications for the woman who became queen, Ermengarde de Beaumont, not a Matilda, Uh, She was the daughter of Richard de Beaumont, Vicomte of Maine, who was the son of one of Henry I's illegitimate daughters. The marriage of a reigning king was, in the words of the uh, historian Margaret Howell, the trump card in the diplomatic game. A unique tool that, used wisely, could cement alliances and bolster the king's position, as well as provide heirs for the kingdom. And William was keen to play this card wisely. The marriages of his father, grandfather and great-grandfather had all been to English or Anglo-Norman women of very high status and the continuation of this pattern was thus a matter of pride and prestige. From the beginning of his reign, so before his marriage, the focus of William's kingship was skewed towards the south and England. This reflected in part his own priorities. He was very keen to regain um, the territory of Northumbria, which had been which had passed out of Scottish hands. But it also reflected the political reality that no matter how strong his own position within Scotland and no matter how strong Scotland's position within its northern neighbours, A breakdown in the relationship with the English king could have devastating consequences. This was proved abundantly when William joined the rebellion of Henry II's son, known as the young king, in 1173 to 1174. William was captured at Annick and had to submit to to the humiliating Treaty of Falaise to secure his release, becoming Henry's liege man for Scotland and for all his other lands. While Henry II never attempted to exercise the practical control over Scottish affairs that this position theoretically gave him, it made a marriage that could enhance and promote a good relationship between the two a very desirable one from the point of view of William. It also, however, put William in a weak bargaining position. He'd already had to do homage to to Henry II and therefore he wasn't really in a position to make too many demands from him. In 1184, William went to Henry II, accompanied by the Bishop of St Andrews and various nobles, to ask for the hand in marriage of Matilda of Saxony, Henry's own legitimate granddaughter. The King of Scots could hardly have sought a more prestigious match, and the proposal was rejected on the grounds that the marriage would have been within the prohibited degrees, so within the degrees which the Catholic Church banned marriage. And the marriage certainly was within the prohibited degrees, and on those grounds Henry II said that he didn't mind it taking place, but he referred it to the Pope, and the Pope said no. However, it wasn't uncommon at the time for marriages to be made anyway, even if they were within the prohibited degrees. So it does seem likely that basically Henry II was kind of hiding behind this, and that had he actually wanted the marriage to go ahead, it probably could have done. Instead, in 1186, Henry II summoned William to his court and proposed that he would instead give to William in marriage his kinswoman, Ermengarde, this great uh, great granddaughter of Henry I, but through an illegitimate line. Presumably, Henry II deemed that her lineage, which was good but not too good, was an ideal match for William. According to contemporary chronicles, William and his advisers ummed and ah for some time before they finally agreed to the marriage. Obviously, it was rather less prestigious than William had hoped for, but at the same time, he was in a subordinate position to Henry II and wasn't really in a position to say no. His agreement was indeed a smart move. Uh, shortly afterwards, Henry II intervened to give William aid against a rebellion in Galloway, which shows that these kind of marital alliances could very quickly lead to practical uh, practical help. The wedding itself took place at Woodstock in the King's Own Chapel, deep in the heart of the English Kingdom. So this in itself emphasised William's subordinate position. Him and all his entourage had to travel down all the way to Woodstock from Scotland. Nonetheless, it was still a lavish occasion and Henry II footed the bill for it. And it's the first time as well that a marriage between... Um, the English and the Scots gets a really good write-up in the chroniclers, and there's lots of chron- chronicle evidence talking about kind of what a big deal it was and what a big party they all had. Initially, there is little evidence for political activity by Ermengarde. Relations with Henry II and then his successor, Richard I, were cordial, but the succession to the English throne of King John ushered in a new relation of poor relations between England and Scotland. King John reacted badly to a proposal that the King of France, Philip II, should marry one of William and Ermengarde's daughters. He marched north and at Norham, William was forced to agree to a humiliating peace treaty which included handing over his two elder daughters to John on the understanding that the English king would find them good matches. And anybody who knows a bit about King John knows that he really wasn't one to be trusted with other people's children. Uh, he had very poor record um, in that respect. This episode perhaps demonstrated to Ermengarde the direct impact that diplomacy and Anglo-Scottish relations could have on her family... Plus, she would surely have taken more of an interest in events in England now that her own daughters were in King John's hands. This is borne out by events in February 1212. William, her husband, was dealing with a serious rebellion in Scotland, and his position as king must have looked precarious. At the height of this rebellion, he met King John at Norham. And there's an account of this meeting in uh, in the Chronicle of Walter Bower, which is a Scottish chronicle which was written much later but was probably based upon an account written by the Chancellor of Scotland, who was certainly present at the conference, and we know uh, knew Ermengarde very well. This account credits Ermengarde with a key role in mediating between the two kings, saying, quote, The Queen of Scotland was present and acted as a mediator, an extraordinary woman, gifted with a charming and witty eloquence. And that, from a medieval chronicler talking about a woman, is very high praise indeed. The result of the negotiations was renewed friendship between the men and, more practically, military aid for William against the rebellion. Further, they agreed to support each other's heir in the event of the other's death, and John shortly afterwards knighted the young Alexander, Ermengarde and William's eldest son, in London. They probably also confirmed that Alexander, the heir to the throne of Scotland, would marry John's infant daughter, Joan, although both children were still very young at the time. John's military help was crucial in the defeat of Guthrid's rebellion, and thus Ermengarde's role at the Noran Conference had very real political consequences. King John, however, could be a fickle friend, and the peace did not long survive. His failure to honour his promises with regard to the marriages of Ermengarde and William's children was one of the grievances that Magna Carta attempted to regress in 1215, and there is a clause in Magna Carta which is specifically about how they need to basically sort out these marriages which had long been promised and not um, had any results. But after John's failure to even attempt to adhere to the great charter, the new Scottish king, William and Erdmengard's son, Alexander II, joined the rebellion of the English barons. John's death shortly after took the force out of the rebellion and the English barons came to terms with the new English king, the young Henry III. Alexander in Scotland was obliged to do the same, but this was done in a spirit of reconciliation and very far from the humiliating peace that was forced upon William the lion by Henry II a generation before. Nonetheless, Alexander II was insistent that the marital situations of himself and his sisters should be rectified, and to this end, plans were made for the marriage of Alexander II and Joan, Henry III's sister. For various very complicated reasons, Alexander had to accept Joan without a marriage portion or dowry, so he he took her as bride, but um, her brother, Henry III, didn't provide any money or any lands with her. Nonetheless, in prestige, she still far outstripped any previous Scottish queen consort, the marriage took place at York, which is still evidence of Alexander's subordinate position to the English king, but nothing like a subordinate as the marriage taking place at Woodstock. Essentially, it's that much further north, which makes the journey of the Scottish king down there much less arduous. Henry III's government ensured that all the appropriate escorts were in place for Alexander on his journey, and given the danger and the difficulty of to and froing between Scotland and England, having appropriate escorts for the journey between the, um, the two courts had long been a point of honour for the kings of Scots. And a Scottish chronicle called the Gestronalia notes that Alexander came south under safe conduct with great pomp and escorted by a large company of nobles. And this is borne out by records which survive here at the National Archives. This is just the period when the kind of government roles that we keep here were just beginning to get going. So we start having a, a real step change in the quality of evidence um, about this kind of thing. So entries on the patent rolls and the close rolls record that everything was arranged, quote, as Alexander desires according to his own and his predecessor's custom. And there are also two letters from the Bishop of Durham, who formed part of Alexander's escort, which say that Alexander was deliberately delaying his arrival in York by day, because he did not want to get there before Henry III. So he obviously wanted to kind of be the one making the impressive entrance, and being greeted by Henry III, rather than the one who was having to hang around in York waiting for him. Uh, The Northumbrian pipe roll, which is a a roll of payments, for 1221 records a payment made to Alexander of 15 pounds for his expenses en route, as well as a grant uh, by Henry to him of £10 worth of lands in Tyndale, where he already had possessions. It's not a huge quantity, um, it's not a huge amount of money, even for that period, so this seems to have basically been a bit of a goodwill gesture more than anything else. Thus, Alexander II and Joan were married at York in the presence of Henry III. The royal dynasties of Scotland and England were united in the person of the Queen, and a Queen who had been born to a reigning king. The Chronicle of Melrose, another Scottish chronicle, records the splendid and fitting nuptials, and the wedding was also recorded widely by English chroniclers who previously had basically shown no interest in Scottish queens. The pipe roll for Yorkshire includes an entry for over £100, which is tens of thousands of pounds today, for the expenses of the king at York, for the wedding of his sister, and for the three following days. And Henry II had paid for the expenses of William for the three days after his wedding to Ermengarde, and Henry III himself would do so again when his daughter some years later married Alexander III, So, obviously, there was a bit of a tradition developing here. Both Alexander II and Henry III must have hoped that the Union would forge good relations between England and Scotland, and this bond was still central to Anglo-Scottish relations throughout the 1220s and 1230s. Several letters between the two, which are preserved here at the National Archives, suggest genuine affection... There's also a number of entries on the close rolls showing that Henry is granting favours to people at the request of his sister. So she's obviously contacting him and saying, oh, will you please do this favour for me? Will you pardon this person? Or will you give some money to this person? And he's doing that for her. This contact extended into real political action. Early in 1224, Hugh de Lacey invaded Ireland, aiming to retrieve his forfeited earldom of Ulster. He had allies in Wales and northern England, and Henry III feared that he would attempt to gain additional support from Alexander. A letter from Joan to her brother, written at the time, states that she had been happy to receive letters from him and sympathises with him about the problems in Ireland. Further, Joan assures her brother that Alexander has told her that from the return of this bearer, so the bearer of the letter, no-one shall go from Scotland to Ireland to injure Henry's subjects and that anyone intercepted trying to do so will be punished. It also mentions that it's been secretly reported in Scotland that the King of Norway was planning to assist De Lacey. Joan's importance becomes even clearer in the 1230s, when Anglo-Scottish relations declined. In December 1235, Henry III announced that he was calling all his fidelies, all his faithful men, to London, including the King and Queen of Scotland, and arranged a safe conduct and escort for them. Although this honourable company, which included the Archbishop of York and the Bishop of Durham, cannot have entirely alleviated the indignity of the summons and the difficult journey south. The day after Henry ordered the escort, he granted that Joan should be allowed materials to improve lodgings that he'd already granted her in England, perhaps implying that they would stay there on their journey and that they could kind of make it a bit nicer in the meantime. He also uh, made a gift of 15 rings to her retinue, which is recorded on the pipe roll. And the presence of Queen's consort was by no means obligatory at royal councils, so um, it would seem that Henry hoped that her presence there would facilitate smoother relations between him and uh, the King of Scots. However, relations between the men did not improve, and in September 1236, Henry III went north to meet Alexander. According to the chronicler Matthew Paris, Alexander was demanding that he be granted the much-disputed territory of Northumbria, and claiming that John had promised it to him with his marriage to Joan. Henry eventually offered Alexander lands worth 80 marks annually, and they broke up to discuss things further. And the chronicler of Walter Bauer notes the presence of Joan at the meeting. He uses the Latin verb interesse, which at this period could just mean that she was there, but it could also have the sense that she was actually involved in the negotiations. Both sides might have expected the Queen to take such a role, particularly as that the whole argument was essentially about her marriage agreement and further given the example of Ermengarde's mediation between their fathers. Henry's charter role at the time records that, uh, that he granted the manor of Driffield to Joan, making it likely that the grant was made at the time of the meeting and perhaps that this was a, a signal of goodwill to Scotland or maybe a mark of gratitude to Joan for her role in the negotiations. Alexander was still unhappy, though, and another meeting took place in York in September 1237 with the mediation of Otto, the papal legate. Both queens were present, along with various nobles, and again it seems likely that Joan acted as a mediator. This time the meeting was a success. Alexander surrendered his claims to Northumbria and his claim to money owed from the 1209 treaty, and in return was granted lands in the northern counties worth £200 annually, which was a very uh, very substantial amount of money. Crucially for the King of Scots the peace made no mention of any claim by henry iii to overlordship of scotland which was another issue of ongoing contention so the ancient scottish claim to northumbria which had been vigorously pursued by alexander's forefathers was abandoned precisely because of closer dynastic ties with the ruler of that long disputed territory no matter how valuable joan's involvement in diplomacy however it could not be forgotten that her most important role was the production of an heir to ensure a smooth succession and to unite the dynasties of Scotland and England in the person of the King of Scots. After the 1237 council had dissolved, Joan accompanied her sister-in-law, of Provence, the young Queen of England, on a pilgrimage to Canterbury. The Chronicle of Melrose records simply that it was on account of prayer, but perhaps Joan was praying for an heir. However, she fell seriously ill and died on the 4th of March 1238. She had by that point been at the English court for several months raising the possibility that even after 16 years as Queen of Scotland, she was still happiest with her natal family in England. She'd attended the enthron- enthronement of William de Cantaloupe as Bishop of Worcester, so perhaps had had a formal diplomatic role, but much of the stay seems to have been an informal, pleasurable time. She was at Henry's Court at Christmas, and there's, uh, in the records that we hold here at the National Archives, um, there's the exchange of gifts amongst the family and buying each other presents. However, it was clearly inappropriate for the Queen to be separated from her husband for long periods of time, particularly when she had yet to conceive a child by him. And in late January 1238, arrangements were being made for her return before her illness um, and subsequent death intervened. Matthew Parrish, the chronicler, commented that her death was grievous. However, she merited less mourning because she refused to return to Scotland, although often summoned back by her husband. Though very uncharitable... This possible cooling of relations between the King of Scots and his English wife is further borne out by evidence from her own will. This requested that her final resting place should be Tarrant Abbey, a Cistercian nunnery in Dorset, hundreds and hundreds of miles from her marital home. While there wasn't really any tradition of Queens of Scotland being buried alongside their husbands, they had nonetheless always at least been buried in Scotland. Joan also made extensive provisions for Tarrant in her will, and in the years after his sister's death, Henry III continued to pay for her commemoration at the Abbey, seen uh, in the rolls here at the National Archives. And most dramatically, in 1252, so almost 14 years after Joan's death, Henry ordered the production of an image of a queen in marble for Joan's tomb at a cost of 100 shillings, which is probably two or £3,000 in today's money, which is one of the first funerary effigies of a queen to be erected in England and unfortunately no longer survives. Back in Scotland, however, Alexander II was in need of an heir, and for that he needed a wife, In 1238, Henry III wrote to Alexander of his desire that their alliance should unite and conjoin them, that in all things they may be mutually stronger. And there are hints in the letter that another match with an English noble may have been under discussion. But there were no obvious candidates at the English court, and so Alexander did what no Scottish king had done for generations. He arranged a match with a French noblewoman without any reference or consultation with the King of England. In May 1239, he married Marie de Cousy, the daughter of of a leading Picardine nobleman. Engelrand de Cousy. Engelrand had previously been involved in the attempts of Louis of France, later Louis VIII, to gain the throne of England in 1216 to 1217. However uh, he and his family were not kind of the, the mere playthings of the French kings and there is no record that Henry objected to the match at the time. Matthew Paris in his Historia Anglorum records that the marriage was less than acceptable to the English king for it is agreed widely that France is an enemy of England. But his earlier work, Historia Anglora is written towards the end of his life, and his earlier work, the Chronica Majora, doesn't include this statement, making it likely that Paris revised his own narrative in the light of later events. Whatever Henry III thought at the time, his misgivings may have increased as his relationship with the King of France steadily worsened, exacerbated by rumours circulated at the English court by disaffected Scottish nobles that Alexander II was in league with the King of France and also with Irish rebels. The birth of a son and heir to Alexander and Marie in 1238 cannot have helped, making it a probability that despite the efforts of the uh, English courts earlier, the next king of Scots would have closer ties of kingship with France than with England. The situation had reached crisis point by August 1244, with Alexander II fortifying border castles and Henry III marching north with his army. Matthew Paris reports that the friendship between the two kings had been weakened beyond measure, since Alexander had allied himself by marriage to the daughter of this Frenchman. It shows into sharp relief the difference in the roles of Alexander's two queens, whereas during Joan's lifetime her status had helped diffuse tensions, quite the opposite were true of Marie's queenship, and there is no mention in any of the sources of her presence at any of the conferences to try and resolve the situation. However, resolved it was, and one of the terms of the agreement that uh, Henry and Alexander came to in 1244 was that Henry's daughter Margaret should marry the young son of Alexander II and Marie, another Alexander. So despite the failure of the earlier marriage project, both kings clearly saw that ties of marriage were the best way to ensure smooth relations between their two kingdoms. Alexander II died shortly before his son's eighth birthday, resulting in a minority government in Scotland. So Henry II in England may well have been anxious that the planned marriage should go ahead as soon as possible so that he could uh, get some involvement in the new ruling council through through his daughter, who would then be the Queen of Scots. And it's also likely that people in Scotland, some of the f- Scottish factions, also pushed for this, possibly thinking that Henry III was preferable to some of their rivals in Scotland. The wedding was arranged for, 12, uh, for 1251, December 1251 to take place in York, and there was obviously no way that it could be any less lavish than the wedding in 1221 between Alexander II and Joan, especially given that a number of people attended both. Matthew Parris, the chronicler, who was possibly present, records that there was a huge number of magnates and clergy from England and Scotland, uh, plus a number of French nobles accompanying Marie, the mother of the King of Scots. He might be thought to be exaggerating, but Henry III's own records held here, which have been analysed in some detail, show that he wasn't. From the Sheriff of York alone was ordered for the wedding 1,000 hens, 300 partridges, 30 swans, 20 cranes, 25 peacocks, 50 rabbits and 300 hares. Huge quantities of new clothing and gifts for everyone were also ordered. So it was obviously a time of reconciliation and celebration and also a major event with everybody on show. Uh, Matthew Paris attributes to Alexandra a speech in which he pleads with Henry to adopt him as a son. Um, and Henry III apparently had to try hard not to cry at this point. And, and while this may not be exactly true, the youth of the Scottish royal couple is key to understanding their relationship with Henry III and therefore Anglo-Scottish relations at this time and Margaret's role within them. Henry was certainly willing to in- intervene in Scottish politics, and basically, we see from this point a sort of pattern of, um, of him occasionally sort of getting involved with the minority council to get rid of people and then get new people in. Um, and obviously, the Scottish magnates weren't necessarily happy with this, but at the same time, because Scottish politics itself was quite factionalized, they often appealed to, uh, to Scotland, um, to Henry themselves, to, um, to, make this, uh, to make this happen. It came to a head, particularly in 1255... When Margaret reported to an appointee of Henry uh, that she had been, um, that she basically was almost being kept prisoner in Edinburgh Castle and that she wasn't being allowed to have conjugal access to her husband. So Henry, who had already appointed some guardians, was very cross about this and punished the guardians that he'd appointed and sort of, you know, really, uh, really rattled his sabre about it. The episode had major political implications, chiefly the removal of the dominant common faction from the minority government and their replacement by new councillors from a broader range of noble families. But amidst all of this, the uh, English and Scottish family, royal family was reunited at Walk, and one can see the influence of the royal couple on more minor matters, such as in the roles here. We've got numerous actions and grants made at the request of, uh, of Henry's daughter, Queen Margaret, and his son-in-law, Alexander III. Nonetheless, it was a time of considerable tension, but this had been dispelled by the following year, when in August Margaret and Alexander were once again in England, And Matthew Parrish, the chronicler, stresses that this was a purely family occasion. Nonetheless, the safe conduct which was issued uh, does stress that there were certain things which were off the table in terms of negotiations. So there was still a political edge even to this. There was feasting and fun, and the event was surely intended to underline the status um, of the King and Queen of Scots as part of the royal family. And again, there was this sort of flurry of pardons issued by Henry III at the intercession of his eldest daughter. The period between this and Margaret's next visit to her father in 1260 was crucial in terms of the balance of power in both Scotland and England. During the summer of 1257, Henry was much taken up with events in Sicily and Wales, although the government roles here show that he was still in close contact with his daughter and son-in-law in in Scotland. And Scottish respect for authority can be seen in some of the attempts to include him in agreements that would restore the Commons to some measure of power. Negotiations failed, however, and the Commons seized power and the person of Alexander III, the king, in October 1257. The chronicler Matthew Paris blames this seizure of power on the misgovernment of Alexander III, which is a bit unfair, seeing as he was still quite young. But it may well have been the case that the minority government was seen to have been too deferential to Henry III. And Matthew Paris states that the Queen, Queen Margaret, was put in custody and guarded carefully so that she should not take after her father. And moreover, the nobles of Scotland reproached the Queen in that she had spurred on and called upon her father to come upon them as an enemy with his army. And this certainly suggests that a young outsider queen was being used as a convenient scapegoat for what were the primarily internal disputes between the Scottish factions. Henry's response, in fact, was far from tyrannical. He sent the sheriffs of Northumbria and York into Scotland, but gave them instructions to do nothing as long as his friends were not molested. He also wrote to Malise, the powerful Earl of Strathern, asking him to safeguard the interests of Margaret, his daughter, something which Malise assured him he would do. The collapse in Henry's own power in England in April 1258 doubtless meant he was more willing to accept the new situation in Scotland. But he surely also realised that the change in the balance of power in Scotland need not be detrimental to the interests of its king and queen. The commons were seeking to re-establish themselves at the heart of royal government. They weren't seeking to kick out the king or subvert his authority. So with no actual assistance from Henry at all, a compromise was reached that restored the commons to a position of political power, but also made room for Alan Durwood, another powerful noble, and had in a nominal position at the head of the governing council, Queen Marie de Cousy, Alexander III's widowed mother, and her new French husband. It was from this time that Alexander III actually began to to assert himself in his own right, albeit within a government that remained dominated by the commons and their supporters. By contrast, in England, Henry III was struggling to accommodate the demands of the reforming barons, and until early 1261, the English government was in the hands of a baronial council. Without the familial link between the leaders of the two governments, there's a noticeable decline in the records that we have here in the level of contact between the two kingdoms, and a much lower profile for uh, for Queen Margaret. However, in late 1260, the Scottish royal couple travelled south to meet Henry, and the continuator of Matthew Parris's chronicle goes into some detail about the splendour of this event. It was the first meeting at which the two kings were really equals, and Alexander was actually in charge himself of the governments of Scotland. And as I say, Henry III's government was being controlled by a baronial council, so in this sort of situation, Alexander, to some extent, actually has the upper hand. Uh, Henry, at this time, was beginning moves to overthrow the council, and Alexander and Margaret were presumably briefed on this because Alexander's support, or at least his neutrality, would have been very important to Henry in his decision to act. And family ties, of course, were crucial to this, and must have been even more in the foreground due to the fact that Margaret herself was heavily pregnant with her first child, in whose veins would run the the blood of the two ruling families. Because of her pregnancy, Margaret remained in England after Alexander's departure back to Scotland and gave birth at Windsor, where she was staying with her mother. This caused some concern to the uh, the Scottish nobility, the birth of of a potential heir outside Scotland, but oaths were taken in England, and Henry III issued a letter patent guaranteeing that Margaret should be returned to Scotland as soon as possible after the birth of the child, and that if she died in childbirth, the offspring would be delivered to her husband. In England, civil war erupted in early 1264, pitching Henry III and his supporters against Earl Simon de Montfort and his supporters. After Henry's defeat at Lewis in May 1264, the Earl seized power and ruled in the king's name. The Scottish aristocracy took a close interest in events. Uh, Many of them had holdings in England, and a large Scottish force fought for Henry at Lewis. And Alexander's support for Henry III here is a striking contrast to his father's role in the baronial rebellion against the king in 1215 to 1217, and a testimony to the bond between the two kings, to which Margaret was vital. And I'm sure they were concerned on a personal level for the family's well-being, but also must have recognised that the overthrow of Henry's government could jeopardise the close Anglo-Scottish relations that they'd done so much to foster, and have an adverse effect on the prospects of, uh, of their own son, um, who of course was Henry III's grandson. The Lord Edward, Henry III's eldest son, was captured at Lewis, Um, And at some point before his escape in May 1265, he was visited by Oliver, the abbot of Dryborough, who, according to chronicle evidence, was sent on behalf of the king and queen of Scotland. Uh, Of course, Queen Margaret of Scotland at this time is is the sister of uh, of the Lord Edward. The chronicle of Melrose has a lengthy account of this event, and it's clear that Simon de Montfort was extremely concerned that the abbot might be secretly carrying a letter or message from the royal couple. And he basically follows the abbot around throughout throughout his visit and follows him up and down stairs to make sure he's not going to try and sneak a secret message. Montfort had good reason to be concerned. Even if Oliver carried no secret message, the very fact that he'd been sent by Alexandra and Margaret was a statement of their support for Henry. So in uh, March 1265, he attempted to kind of neutralise this threat by including the Scottish king in the staged freeing um, of Edward from close captivity, but not from Montfort's actual control. And and he writes so Montfort writes letters to Alexandra and Margaret in Henry III's name, trying to get them on board with the plan. Um, And those letters also survive here. Unsurprisingly, Montfort did not win the support of Alexander III and Margaret, nor of the majority of the magnates of Scotland, or indeed quite a lot of the magnates in England. And after the Battle of Evesham, at which royal forces defeated Montfort's army and killed the Earl, there was a period during which royal forces were putting down pockets of resistance. And after the surrender of an Anglo-Scottish baron, John de Vazier, Annick, uh, the Lord Edward went to Roxburgh to talk with the King of Scotland, and he was met with by Alexander and Queen Margaret there. And uh, according to the Chronicles, nearly all the nobility of Scotland and there was much rejoicing before he turned, before he returned home. A safe conduct was issued for Alexander and Margaret in 1268, coming to England for solace and recreation. Um, and again, this is a bit of a role reversal. You know, Henry's been through an awful lot here, whereas Alexander is, is kind of riding high. So uh, we can kind of see that the balance of power has really changed between the two kings. Nonetheless, I think there's still an impression of affection and ongoing contact, and you can see this again in the roles here and in the letters between them. There can be no doubt about the warmth of feeling between the Scottish and English royal families. And there's a letter from Alexander III to Henry III where he talks about uh, the position of me and the Queen, my dearest wife and your beloved daughter, and then inquires after Henry himself and the Queen, your wife, my beloved mother and their children. And also there's a lot of gift exchange, and you also see on the rolls here uh, records of payments to messengers going frequently to and from Scotland. So there really was a lot of contact. At uh, Henry III's death in November 1272, the Gestronalia, the Scottish Chronicle, noted that never did any of the English kings in any past time keep his pledges towards the Scots more faithfully than this Henry, for nearly the whole time of his reign he was looked upon the kings of Scots, father and son, as their most faithful neighbour and adviser. This may slightly overcase, overstate the case for Alexander II, but I think it was the case for Alexander III, in large part because of his marriage to Margaret, and Then he had because of this, this warm and loyal relationship with Henry. And uh, the new king, Edward I, returned from crusade a leisurely pace and was crowned in 1274. Uh, Alexander and Margaret, the king queen of Scots, were in attendance at the coronation, a fact that was widely noted by chroniclers. And a Scottish chronicle at Lanacost records that Alexander exceeded the generosity of everybody else in hospitality and in gifts. But these notices of their attendance were tinged with sadness, for most chroniclers also record that shortly after the coronation, both Margaret, the queen of Scots, and her sister Beatrice, Countess of Brittany, who was also there, Died. They were widely lamented in the Chronicles, and uh, the rolls here at the National Archives record Edward I's annual payments were chaplain to celebrate divine offices in the Church of St. Margaret at Westminster for the soul of his dearest sister, Margaret, Queen of Scotland. At the time of her death, Margaret had, despite the rocky start to her queenship, fulfilled her key roles. She'd bound together the royal households of England and Scotland, facilitating good relations and helping to ensure crucial support from Scotland during a very difficult period in the reign of her father, Henry III. She'd produced three healthy children, including two sons, another key role for the Queen. However, within a few short years, all of this was undone, with the deaths of all of her children, leaving Alexander III without a male heir. So Alexander III was predeceased by all of his legitimate children. For him, obviously, this was a personal tragedy, but it was also a dynastic disaster... In the end, his heir was the infant daughter of his own daughter by her husband, Eric II of Norway, and this is the child that we know as Margaret, Maid of Norway. But the death of the Maid of Norway in 1290, during her journey to Scotland, precipitated a succession crisis in Scotland and paved the way for years of turmoil and bloodshed. Ultimately then, as we have seen, the Queen could play an important role in diplomacy, but key to her success was producing a physical reproduction of this rapprochement in the person of an heir, and unfortunately, without that, Any queen could be considered a failure. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives. All rights reserved.